On the 21st of October 1966, news coverage flashed around Britain and the rest of the world about the horror of a disaster in the Welsh mining village of Aberfan, a story made all the more poignant through the death of 116 children in the local school. Incredibly, it has taken 30 years for any of the surviving children to speak about their experiences. The first to do so, Gaynor Madgwick, was just eight years old on that fateful day. In this special programme, she tells Doreen Jenkins her remarkable story. The day started as usual. We got up in the morning, usually about quarter past seven, half past seven. My mum used to call us. We'd all come down the stairs to a little sort of coal effect fire. Usually it was always freezing because in them days the fire wasn't warm enough to, to warm our little house. We all got dressed for school the usual day. We were quite happy because it was the last day of school and we were breaking up then to have a week's holiday. My brother, Carl, it was the only brother then, and it was Marilyn, my sister. Blinda, the elder sister, was going to another school because she left um, school because she passed 11 plus. Myself then and Marilyn and Carl went to school with our friends. We were given then money to spend on the tuck shop as we entered school, which we always done every morning. Pennies in those days then went a long way. We went to school then, uh, we had a very, very short assembly because the teachers wanted to get on with the, you know, the sort of clearing up then for the holiday. We went into our classrooms then. Carl's classroom was on the left side of me. Uh, I was in the middle of my classroom and Marilyn's classroom was to the right of me. And we were the only classrooms then facing the tip site. We sat down in the class. The next thing and I remember is Mr. Davis got the blackboard out to usually start his day then doing the maths homework that we had to take home for that week. And the blackboard was put right up in the corner where the window was facing the tip site. The next thing I remember was just this tremendous rumbling sound, like thunder, but a thousand times more than thunder. And it got louder and louder and louder, but it seemed a long way away. We knew it was coming to come on top of us or from somewhere, but we didn't know where. The next thing I remember, the sound got so loud, I remember looking to the window and then I could see this just blackness coming through the window. I just managed somehow to sort of put one foot in front of the other to try to run for the door, but I didn't get to the door. The next thing then, I must have been passed out or whatever in all the, the mud. I remember I woke up in the corner of the classroom, I'm right at the back of the classroom, stuck fast in the corner. I woke up to a, just a nightmare. It was unbelievable. There was desks, chairs, the roof had caved in, um, children were sort of underneath the mac, there was arms, sort of legs. So everybody was all distorted and lying on top of each other. Uh, I didn't cry or anything because I don't think no one knew what was going on. The next thing I remember is looking to see my friend Dawn and the roof had caved in and Dawn for somehow just managed to get through the roof and over to where the door was. Um, she could, we couldn't get through the door. She couldn't get through the door, obviously, because the muck was too high up. But she was trying to get then to the window side. How long were you actually trapped in this black mass? I, I would have thought about 20 minutes or not, but that 20 minutes seemed like a lifetime. Because I had to watch um, my friends. One or two tried to escape, but they didn't have much chance because they couldn't get through the window and they couldn't get through the door. The next thing I remember was picking up a book, which was called Through the Garden Gate. And I remember seeing blood all over this book. But I was just reading it as if nothing else was going on, just watching everything that was going on. Weren't you just terrified? You are terrified, at, but when you're that young, 
you 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 don't know what has hit you. And I think with the shock of it all, that's why I didn't cry. But I was just watched everyone else. Gerald Kerwin lay to my left hand side because I couldn't see my legs. I started sort of whimpering to Gerald, my legs are gone, my legs are gone. And the radiator had come off the wall, one of these huge radiators in those days, and landed in front of me. But to this day, I think that saved my life because the muck didn't get up to my face where, you know, it didn't smother me in that way. David Bates lay by the side of me. He'd cut his head open quite badly and there was blood all over his face. There's another little boy then, uh, Paul. Uh, he would just lay there sleeping. He had sort of white stuff all around his mouth. But we knew he was dead then, but it didn't look as if he was dead because he didn't look hurt in any way. He would just lay there sleeping. But it wasn't until after I found out that he had died that day. I remember the crack in the wall had opened up then with the force of all the muck inside the classroom and my arm had gone stuck fast and the wall then had sort of closed back up and my hands sealed tight and then I was stuck like that and just couldn't move. There was another child's arm then sort of a few inches away had come through again another crack in the wall from the elbow hanging into where I was lying and I remember squeezing this arm to see if this arm would move or if the child next door would scream so I could hear that child was alive but to this day I never know who it was but they must have been dead because the arm was just lying there. And what did you actually think to do? Nothing really, because I, I couldn't move. I mean, my, I, as far as I was concerned at that time, my legs had gone because I just couldn't feel them. I couldn't even see them. I just was just watching everyone else, but we were getting worried because we couldn't get out and no one was coming to save us. It wasn't till oh, quite a few you know minutes after. I remember looking up to the window side because one window was full. And somebody shouted to hide our eyes then because uh, they wanted to smash the, the glass to get through to us. And when they, they smashed the glass and it was my granddad and I just couldn't believe. I just looked at him and he looked at me and then as then I started to cry. He couldn't come and get me obviously because there was too many children in the way that he had to sort of clear away first before he could get to me. But his face in that window that day I'll never ever forget never forget but eventually he did get to me but he was the first one there that morning because they were on the ash lorry is him his friend jack and ken and they were the first ones there but it took him a long time to get me free then because my hand was stuck tight and whatever way they moved my hand then i was in quite a lot of pain then i was carried in in a human chain outside the pain was very um i couldn't sort of bear it really oh i never passed out i'll never know now, your father was actually quite nearby at the time, working in his quarry, yes. which is about 100 feet below the school. And uh, he was with three or four men working there. But when you were actually carried out, were you conscious of seeing lots and lots of people? Because oh, yes, yes. People ran from all over the village, didn't they? Yes, I, remember, I, I was conscious through it all. I think this is why the memories are so vivid. When I was carried out, I just remember seeing utter chaos. The first thing that stuck it to my mind till this day was the sound of the sirens of the ambulances in those days. They seemed to be much louder to what they are today. And it was sirens just seemed to fill the air, you know, the whole time that I was there. There was muck everywhere, so of course you had everybody had to sort of step and sort of climb over different things, you know. And you had to be like a human chain. There was no way one person could carry you to, to to safety. You had to be in a human chain. It wasn't as if it was Abavan or anything recognisable. It was just like um, a huge crater, really. I remember just being like a huge crater, like as if someone had dropped a bomb. It was at a chaos. Nothing was whole. Houses being knocked down. There was cars caught up in it. There was a, even a farm that was brought down 
from the mountainside. Parents, obviously, all crying. Everybody was sort of crying and really sort of um, horrified. The faces were just horrified, trying to scramble through the muck just to look for, for their uh, loved ones. But my mum and dad um, were right by the ambulance when I was carried to the ambulance. They weren't that concerned about me. They knew I was alive and I was out. But I was more concerned to go back in to find my shoes. Because in those days, uh, you only had one pair of shoes and they had to last you a long time. Because many was quite difficult to come by. And I was crying to my mother, let me go back and get my shoes. I want to get my shoes. I'll buy you thousands of pairs of shoes, she said. Don't worry about that, you know. And my dad then and my nan took me to the ambulance then. And I was, you know, I went away in the ambulance. But I remember the ambulance sort of rumbling back and forth. And the pain I was in because of the, the ground was also uneasy for the ambulance to get through. Were you one of the first people to be brought out alive? I know the last person to be brought out alive was around 11am. I think I was out about sort of half past nine, twenty to 10. So I was sort of one of the first, but not well, you know, not many came out alive. So I was probably one of 10 that, that survived that day. But what news of your brother and sister on the day? It wasn't until the afternoon. They made me comfortable when I got to the hospital. I was taken up to a ward and I wanted to know about my brother and sister because no one was there to tell me. And the thing was, like, the TV, like, they didn't put the TV on or anything, so we really didn't know anything at all. My nan came in the afternoon, about 2pm. I asked her then if anything, you know, any news, and she said, no, no news yet. She said, your mother will be up tonight to see you. About 6pm in the evening, my parents came up, and I can remember seeing my parents' face. Uh, they just more or less had been crying all day. And my mum had to be taken out then to be given a cup of tea because uh, she was just couldn't speak to me. And my dad, then I asked my dad, would Carla Mallory all right? And he just replied to me then that they'd gone to heaven and uh, they were being loved there. And that's, that's all he spoke. And, you know, I just grabbed hold of him and clutched him, but I didn't cry. For, for some reason, I didn't cry. I just hugged him. Now, quite a lot of people visited you in hospital because you were there for about three or four months, weren't you? Yes, there were lots of visitors. The Queen came, but she didn't actually come to the ward that I stayed on. Um, Lord Snowden came and he told me a story, a bedside story that day. Um, I can't remember what story it was, but I remember he sat by me and chatted to me and read a story out of the book. And uh, Tinker and Topper, Alan Taylor used to be the, the presenter then. He was quite popular in those days. And I had a puppet of my own I had given to me for a present. And I, we were sort of having a game on, on the bed sheets, you know, and he was playing with my puppet and I was playing with his. And it was quite a big picture because it was put in a lot of the newspapers, which I still have today. I came out on Christmas Eve unable to walk but I was told and I had to go back in for one week then so I could start the process of learning to walk again which I did um, but of course that week home for Christmas it was great to be home because excitement had been in hospital for three months then going home was a, a big excitement but the, um, there was no excitement uh, as a family at home um, I couldn't really stand and I remember coming home that that week and my nan spent a lot of time then with my mother. And we were just standing by the table. She was doing a simple thing like uh, peeling potatoes in the bowl on the table. And for some she just sort of sort of nudged me one side. And the next thing, and I just fell over because I couldn't put my one leg in front of another to sort of save me. And that was very upsetting for me that day. But again, my nan felt terrible, but she didn't, you know, something you don't realise. When did you go back to school? 
I always had a good year after the disaster. I had a few lessons in, in hospital when I was in hospital, but I found it very difficult to go back to school again. In fact, I, I didn't want to. But when they eventually built um, some sort of prefab sort of rooms where we all went um, till the new school was being built, I went there and they had a few um, problems with the grounds of the prefab school. So I was sent to Darren last school and I didn't know this. So I went out in the play yard the first day of school, it was very near to the railway lines and it wasn't until the locomotive came past one day and I was just screaming and put my hands up to my uh, ears because the sound of the train reminded me of the disaster and I was literally terrified in, in the schoolyard and no one could understand why I was crying over the noise of the trains. You were also deeply affected by the dark. Yes, I hated the dark. I didn't want to be anywhere in the dark. If I went to the toilet, my mum had to take me to the toilet and she had to wait for the door for me to come in. I had to sleep with my parents, uh, which wasn't easy. When I look back, it was for me then because I didn't f- know how they were feeling. But of course, for them, is very hard because, of course, they had a child to get up to in the night as well. And of course, I used to start wet in the bed. So I would be lying in, in my mother's bed and my dad's bed, waking up in the morning. I had wet and I'd wet my mum and I'd wet my dad. But never once did they shout at me which is a good thing. I mean, it took years for me to stop, but they never once shouted at me. You've talked about injuries to your leg and things, but did anybody actually talk to you about the experience of it all? Because counselling now is an everyday thought of thing. Mm, yeah. I mean, if there's a problem of any kind, there's a counsellor to help. There's a counsellor. But in those days, did you have any counselling? Oh, no, no, nothing. It was a strange thing. It was like a taboo subject. We didn't want to bring the subject up at all. I didn't want to ask my parents anything, and they didn't want to ask me anything. And that went on for many years after because you felt as if you were intruding or you didn't want to upset my parents by telling them what I felt. And probably they were too upset to ask me. So, it, you know, in the end, I mean, we both suffered in our own silent ways for years. So nobody actually wanted to talk about it? No, no one. It was like a block. Once you came out, you were alive and you were just thankful that you were alive and that was it. You just had to get on with your life as much as you could. Do you think you were viewed on as a victim or were you one of the lucky ones? A victim, I would say a victim in them days. I was lucky in that sort of sense. But again, I feel all survivors are victims. The ones that die, to me, sometimes are the lucky ones because they didn't suffer in any sort of way. I mean, they were taken, you know, straight away. But the ones that live have got to go on suffering the rest of their lives. No one wanted to know really how we were feeling. It was as if like we were alive, so we were just put one side. To me, no one sort of in our van ever thought of the feelings, what we were feeling. And I don't think even my parents really understood how I was feeling. I think because we were so young, they probably thought, oh, you know, children are so resilient, they forget about it and they get over it. But they were wrong. Nothing was said to me. You know, they were looking after my hand. They were looking after my leg. They were more concerned, like, about me getting walking again and the treatment I had after. You know, I took up back at the hospital three times a week, even after the three months. But no one ever asked me mentally what I was going through inside. I'm sure when your parents were visiting you in hospital day in, day out, it must have been very difficult for them because they also had their own bereavements too. When you actually came home, did you talk about Abavan then? No, strangely enough, no. We never, once as a family after, spoke about it. When I look back now, 
my elder sister was only 12 then and it's only now a year ago that she was telling me her experience and she really 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 suffered because she was old enough to take it all in she remembers the day they buried all the children now I wasn't there then so I mean I missed out on all those things she remembers the time when my parents were told that day I mean my auntie had to sort of to go down and sort of see the children you know identify the bodies and twice they went down to the church and twice they weren't brought out it wasn't until the third time they went down and my sister remembers sitting on that um, railings waiting for them to come up and my sister said it was terrible in the house my parents were really well as if they were going mad and did anyone help them no not my elder sister either. She again was the eldest in the family. She, at 12 years old, had to put a brave face on to look after me, to, to sort of watch over my mum and dad. And of course, we had a three-month-old baby called Sean then, which for my parents, I think, was a lot of work. Having me in hospital, a little baby, two children died that day. And I think how they kept their sanity, I'll never, ever know. But again, so many people in that village lost someone I always sort of say that it was like just if the story like the Pied Piper had come into that village blew his flute and all the children followed him out it was it was something like that I mean because it was unbelievable to see a village with all those children just sort of wiped out in one day everyone sort of tried to get back to normal but again we didn't want to sort of hang around the streets like we used to because a lot of the parents were feeling so bad about seeing other children playing in the streets and of course it must have upset them as well then so we more or less sort of used to play up the field you know or we go down where the bank was but there, were, there weren't many of us and the ones that were left were, were much older than what we were so we had to make friends and new friends because all my close friends had died that day except Gerald Kerwin. Gerald himself has carried the burden of Avavan very much with him as indeed have a lot of the survivors. You decided some years ago in contrast, to start writing about Aberfan. Yes. Why did you do this? To this day, I don't know why. It was something, because I'd suffered for all those years inside me till I was 12 years of age. And of course, the guilt feeling I had, I used to cry my eyes out every night thinking about what, what had happened in the day and I was just desperate to talk to someone, but there was no one there to listen to me. So in the end, it was like, I turned to God, so I was sort of talking to God in the nights because I thought then he was listening to me and that did help me a little bit. But when I went to school and I just needed to explode really all what I felt inside me and I was just compelled to start writing a story then and as far back as I could remember, which was five years old then, and I told a complete story then of how my friends, my family, what we'd done, where we went, things we shared right up to that day and my recovery after till I was 14 and I finished the story at 14 years old where I just couldn't go no further because I'd come to um, you know my 14th birthday then and a lot of people don't understand what you were feeling inside yourself but I had to do it for my for my sort of healing and after I finished the book it was a tremendous release from inside me. And I think from that day on, I did suffer, but I don't think I suffered as bad as if I ever would have kept it inside me. When I did eventually show my parents weeks after, they were really horrified reading the story, what I was feeling and what I'd gone through. They just didn't imagine what I was feeling at a young age. What did they want you to do with what you'd written? We were um, told we had to go and see a psychiatrist then. 
But to me, it was a little bit too late. I mean, all the guilt and all the feelings I had, I should have had the help earlier, not all those years on. It was taken to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist had the book and read the book. They had an idea then what we were going through, what the survivors were going through, so they could help them by reading my book. What did you go on to do at school then? School was never, ever the same. Um, I go, you know, again, we didn't have the violence in those days like we have now, but it was as if we sort of told the teachers what to do, not them telling us what to do, because they always seemed to feel pity. We weren't sort of said, right, you've got to do that, because nobody wanted to pressure us. Did they treat you as special children? Yes, yes, definitely. Because I remember once, um, again, standing for a long time after, my leg used to ache and I couldn't stand for that long. I remember being assembly once and only one person sat down in that long assembly and it was me. And uh, when I look back now, it took a lot of guts for me to sit down and everyone was standing, but of course I had to. So I always had that sort of special um, treatment and I seemed to be always teacher's pet. Now you have written this book called Aberfan, Struggling Out of the Darkness. How did you make the great decision to look back at your notes from all those years ago. It wasn't till the 25th anniversary that Melanie Doyle, BBC presenter, she was writing a book on Aberfan called It's Raining in Aberfan. And we were all asked in Aberfan, do we have anything to contribute to the book? Out to the blue, I just said, oh, yes, you know, I've got a story upstairs. Now, would you like to sort of look at it? And she took it home and she phoned me and she cried the all the way through it. She thought it was an excellent story, a very, very sad story. She took a little paragraph out of my book to put in her book. And through that, I was inundated by people ringing me, the media, um, BBC television and you know people from all over the world sort of writing me letters then to could they read my book but obviously it was only in a little blue textbook then I aimed an ad for about a year and two then I thought shall I go ahead and send it to a publisher because so many people still wanted to read it and of course I wanted my parents permission and my family then not for them to sort of feel you know bad about it and my parents said yes go straight ahead because they thought it was a good thing for people to know what I had written then I sat down and I put a beginning to it then, how the tips got there in the beginning, because a lot of people to this day, you know, don't know how they got there. i done a survivor's epilogue. The original story is as it was when I wrote when I was 12 years old. And I put some pictures to it as well then, pictures I've had taken through through the years of the disaster. Sent it to a publishers and then um, everything's come out now and it was published on the 12th of September. And the feedback has been tremendous. Obviously, we know that new schools were built and there was a, an inquiry, etc. But what sort of a lasting effect do you think that disaster had on the people of Aberfan, the adults? The adults, again, I think not many of them to this day have spoken about what they feel. I don't think as any of them, you know, have gone to see a psychiatrist, which I think perhaps they should have through the years. My mum in particular, she was on Valium, put on Valium that week of the disaster, and she's still on Valium today, and there's no way that she could have come off it. But again, like 30 years anniversary now, she doesn't like all this fuss surrounding it, because to her, she, she seems to say anniversaries are happy times. She doesn't like it called being an anniversary, um, because it's such a sad time. But again, I think it's, it's left a scar on so many people. For the children of Pantler School, what have been the lasting effects? A lot of them, again, 
never spoke out. And I think it's only through my book and through me speaking to my friends now about the book that I seem to have brought something out in them that perhaps no one else would have. And them now just can't wait to sort of tell their stories, which I think is a good thing. And they feel easy about speaking to me and other people. Now, you've met up with quite a lot of the other survivors who, by and large, mostly live in Aberfan now. Yes. They stay, don't they? Yes. How did they regard you and your part in writing this book? They thanked me. Um, believe it or not, I invited them all to the launch. There was one boy called David Bates who was a little bit, um, how can I say, saddened when I asked him. And he, first of all, he didn't want anything to do about it. But then I thought, well, I'll leave it here. It's your decision. A couple of days after, when all my friends had had an invite, he phones me up and he said, can I come? And I said, wonderful, you've made your own decision. When I got to the launch that day, all my friends, the survivors then were there, all in their suits, best dresses, shirts and ties. And we had a wonderful day. We had a wonderful day. But of course, I hadn't read the book then because it was the launch that day. So I was waiting then the following day to hear their verdicts. And it was unbelievable. They, they just think it's wonderful. They, th- they really think it's wonderful. It's helped them and it's helped so many other people as well because I've been stopped and, and you know people have said to me, congratulations, I think you've done a wonderful thing because it's made other people realise and it's made people talk about it more. And even the younger members of um, Abbevan, they've got little kiddies in the school, of course never imagined what other people went through. And uh, what I was told was it makes you value children even more. You found that some of your fellow school friends had been walking around with a very deep sense of guilt. Yes. Again, we all sort of had this guilt feeling for many years. My friend Jeanette had this guilt feeling in her because her mother didn't want her to speak about it. So she didn't speak about it all these years till her mother died. And when her mother died, then, of course, all those years she respected her wishes. From that day on, then, she wanted to tell her story. And there was another girl who had been carrying around the guilt because she'd got out of the school classroom and she'd promised some friends she'd come back, but she never had. She never did, no. That was Jeanette. And um, she was one of the ones that got through the roof that day. And she had that guilt feeling because she said, I'll go for help. But obviously, I mean, at that age, I mean, when she was outside and she never came back. But again, she felt guilty all those years because she never came back to try and help us. And what about big, handsome, strong Gerald? Oh, yes, yes. He still is. He still is. My best friend. Um, Gerald's always been this type of guy, uh, a friend to us all. He's got this image. He's tall, handsome, big. So we all sort of looked up to Gerald. And anything went wrong or anybody fighting to be done, Gerald would be the one sort of to take care of things. But, of course, no one knew again because he put this front on. We never knew how he was feeling. So Eve kept this feeling inside him for many years. And to this day, he tells me that because of all the rage and things I used to get up to, it was because that's the way that he could express himself. He never told his mum and dad. And again, it's only through the book now that he's been able to talk. He spoke to me about six months ago when I was finishing the book about what happened to him. And he felt so easy to talk to me. And since that day on, he wants now to tell him his story to people because he feels that it's just, you know, 30 years on now and it's only now that he's coming to terms with it. And has Gerald now told his family, his children, about Aberfan? Yes, yes. And um, his parents as well. He's told his parents. What do you hope that the book will achieve? I think the book will achieve a lot of hope, 
not only for the people in Ambervan, I think it will give a lot of hope to all people from all walks of life. I say of late, these, this Dunblane tragedy, which I think is horrific. But again, those children and those families probably feel that their life has ended and there's nothing to go on for. But again, I think if they read my story, then there is life to be had. And I think you will be happy at the end of the day. Gaynor, a lot of people, total strangers, have come into your life as a result of Avavan. Yes. Um, five years ago, I had so many letters from so many people. I didn't have a chance to sort of get to, you know, give them all a letter back. But I, just, I kept them, and I, I know I've kept them up to date now. When the book was eventually um, being launched, I thought I'd send invitations to all these people. I mean, for all I know, they, they could have passed away in this five years. I didn't know. But then the response I had was wonderful. One chap in Nuneaton, he's an old Welsh guard, uh, 74 years of age, um, only just one lung. But he had a chance to go to France that day with his friends or he had a chance to come to me and it took years for him to track me down. Well, when he had this letter off me, he was just really so happy and he came all the way on the train on his own. I met him at the station. He stood there with a massive bouquet of flowers. I booked him in a local hotel. He came to the launch and he had a wonderful day. And, of course, he should have gone back the following day, but he ended up staying about three or four days after that. And I was just taking him around local spots. When he eventually went back then, he started writing to me. And this is only going back now three weeks to a month. And I had a telephone call last night from him. And he wants to spend a few days down before Christmas and take me and my family out for dinner for sort of a pre-Christmas lunch, which I think is lovely. What feeling do you think pervades in Navavan now? There's still a lot of hatred, I think, and it's always that question, why? And I think, again, like all disasters, the question why is always asked after it's happened. No one seems to know or want to do anything before. But again, it was such a, a horrible thing to happen to so many people that day that I just hope that it'll never, ever happen again to anyone. But there are a lot of people in Aberfan that still will always bear a big scar. And what of your future? My future, I just hope that my health stays with me. I say I'll be 39 next March. My sort of life ambition, I just want to be happy. I just want to be contented, be happy. A little bit extra money wouldn't go amiss <laughs> like anyone, you know. But I think I just health and happiness and my children, I just hope my children have a long, healthy, happy life as well. What would be your personal message to people in Avavan and around the world? It's a difficult thing to sort of give a personal message, but I think the message is got to be of hope. Um, the thing that I went through was horrific, and I never thought to that day that I would ever be happy again. But you've got to have a faith, uh, a faith to go on and keep on going on. Years go so quickly, but you can have happiness at the end of the day, which I think you've got to have that sort of faith and hope inside then things that you want will, will happen. Aberfan survivor Gaynor Madgwick was talking to Doreen Jenkins in a programme produced by Doreen Jenkins and edited by Terry Mann.